You're listening to Where We Are, a weekend conversation on faith, politics, family, and culture, hosted by me, Michael Ware, and my wife, Melissa. We bring our wide-ranging experiences in politics, ministry, and nonprofit life to bear as we discuss the issues of the day. On this week's episode, we'll do one of our favorite things, which is to take questions from you. You're listening to Where We Are. This is Where We Are. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa, a milestone in the year, which is uh, last work trip has been had, which is great. I was away this whole week in yep. Phoenix and Dallas, but now I'm home and uh, really glad about that. There's Me too. Been a lot of travel, a lot of travel this year, um, but glad to... Glad to be home and heading towards the holidays. I know. The holidays Advent are coming starts. up. starts. Yeah, so Advent starts today, which is great. And I'm excited about it with the girls this year. They're finally old enough to start some traditions. Um, Saoirse's doing her first pageant? Yeah, she's doing her first Christmas pageant with our church. And she's been going to rehearsals, and it has been adorable. And then I have this little Advent da- uh, daily devotional with them um, that I'm hoping to keep up let's see how it goes uh yeah it's exciting new traditions no really good speaking of traditions we have a listener question episode today we do we haven't done one in like a couple months i think yeah so we were due for one it's been a while uh and we got great questions so i'm excited to to dig in what we what do we have uh to kick us off okay so bear, bear with me. This, this, this is a cluster of questions that all make sense together. So how do you feel about voting in open primaries? For example, should Georgia Democrats consider voting for uh, Nikki Haley in the Republican primary to try to beat Donald Trump or focus on down-ballot Democratic primaries? What if there aren't any consequential down-ballot Democratic primaries? Or what down-ballot level is consequential? Yeah, good set of yeah, questions. Yeah, love it. Yes. So, Michael, what's an open primary and what does down ballot mean? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, an open primary means that you are allowed to vote in uh, a party's primary without being a member of that party. Voting does not register you as a member of that party. You're basically able to, to choose where you want to vote. Right. Um, this, you know, has a significant effect on electoral outcomes. And I'm, I'm, I like the kinds of outcomes it leads to. Mm-hmm. I am a somewhat hesitant or skeptical about just the nature of the fact of open primaries. And I'll, we'll talk about that more. But uh, so that's, there are open primaries, closed primaries, Georgia, open primary state. Um, New Hampshire, open primary. Um, down ballot just means, you know, more local. So the top of the ballot would be the presidential, you know, yeah. primary, the presidential race. And then 
down ballot, and it's it's a very sort of literal term when you go to look at your ballot when you're voting. The federal races will be typically up top, and then the further down you get, the more local you go. And so down ballot, that's what down ballot uh, relates to. Right. Um, let me start with just the, the, the practical and sort of assume the fact that... Um, like this, this is the electoral system that we have. And so what you do in the system that we have, um, this questioner is from Georgia. Uh, and I think if you live in a state with an open primary, you should vote uh, in the primary where you believe that your vote will be the most highly leveraged, the most influential uh, in a direction that will most influence the good of your neighbors and the good of the political district constituency that that the the main race you're considering, you know, is is for. Um, now that is very different from these efforts of um, partisans voting in the other party's primary to try and manipulate it so that they'll have an easier time in the general winning the election. So I, I, I think earnest open primary voting in you know, assuming and given the fact of your state being an open primary state, I think that's a that's a good thing. I'd even consider switching party registration in order to cast an earnest vote in a in a pivotal in a pivotal election. I can't express enough how much I despise the manipulative party voting, the the idea that, oh, you know, um, so for instance, in Georgia, uh, Biden is is going to be the presumptive Democratic nominee unless there there's some change. Uh, any effort that would say because the Democratic primary doesn't matter, Democrats should vote in the Republican primary for the Republican that will be easiest for Democrats to defeat or just to cause political friction and chaos in the other party. I, I despise that. And I think those uh, you know people of influence who advocate for that kind of thing should be held accountable. PACs and campaign committees that's, that advance this should be held accountable to the greatest extent, you know, uh, possible, given the fact that on the PAC side, you, you don't know all the time where the money's coming from and that sort of thing. So, so that would be, that would be my suggestion. Uh, I, the questioner is an earnest questioner. So I'd say, yeah, cast your vote in the way that you think is most useful, highly leveraged. Um, 
the question about down ballot races. So, right, so this is a very like state and context specific thing. So I think what the questioner is getting at is exactly what I referred to before, which is the Democratic presidential primary isn't gonna be contested, but what about all these down ballot races? And I'd say there, that's like a matter of analysis and, and judgment and discernment. If there are vital sort of contested Democratic primaries down ballot or Republican primaries down ballot so that even if your presidential vote isn't sort of the most, it isn't going to really be influential, the race really isn't in question, um, that you want to have your voice heard within a within that particular party on down ballot races, then, then do that. Um, I think it is a a somewhat difficult thing to assess. Well, I guess here's the other thing I'd add, which is that your vote is more influential in local races for the pure fact of local races have a smaller, have fewer voters. And so just your, your vote carries more weight. And so that's something worth, worth considering as well. If, if, there are contested primaries where you think it's really important that certain candidates win at the local level. Um, you know, your your vote is going to be more decisive rel there relative to a presidential race where millions are going to be millions across the state are going to be are going to be voting. So that's why I'd say, just to zoom out, I sort of alluded. Look, I think political parties at their best and at their ideal are mediating different views from, with, from within among party members. So in an ideal world, A, you, you would have people influencing the party not the part principally rather than the party influencing people's views. And if you had that, if parties were treated less as brand as brands and as affinity groups and more as mediating sort of democratic agents, then open primaries kind of complicate that because Parties are supposed to be representative of people who are members of the party. Um, and so allowing people who are not committed to that party to influence the, that party's outcomes is kind of a um, is kind of an issue. But again, I think in a in a context in which parties are brands, in which parties do a pretty poor job and really don't even intend to mediate disagreement, but would much rather just impose agreement throughout the party. In an imperfect world, I think open primaries are, are generally positive, positive forces. So, so that's, my, that's my take both on the specific question and then just on the nature of parties and open primaries and that sort of thing. Hmm, interesting. I haven't heard you talk about the open primary, but... Uh... The next question is, what is a sleeper bipartisan issue to watch in the coming years? Well, what would you say? I have 
I have two issues. And both of them, well, the first I think would, won't come to, uh, it won't come as a surprise to many, but the second I think it will, and I'll have an explanation why, because the question is says in the coming years. So the first one would be more immediate, and that would be um, China's belligerence in the South China Sea and the United States approach to it. Um, I'm not talking about Taiwan here, even though Taiwan is deeply tied to this issue. Um, the South China Sea, I think, um, especially because they've become quite belligerent towards territories that f the Philippines claims, but there are several other countries that make claims in that sea. It's one of the biggest trading routes in all of uh, the world. And um, it's also a huge industry for seafood fishing. I mean, I think it's around like half of the fishing boats in the world are in the South China Sea. So China's been very interested in this area. They've become over the past five to six years increasingly belligerent there. And I think that this could be one of the next bipartisan national security issues um, with obviously some differences hanging out in the polarized sides of either party. But I think in general, um, in the next year or two, the South China Sea could suddenly be come to a head because of China's approach to Taiwan, potentially. But China has been experiencing an economic downturn, so they might not be as belligerent in the next couple of years, and it might not come to a head in the South China Sea. So we'll have to wait and see. But if it does, that's definitely a bipartisan issue, a sleeper one. And the up, as we discussed in a previous episode, the upcoming elections in Taiwan are yes. going to be pivotal for really deter, uh, uh, being a milestone of uh, 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 a potential sort of uh, turning point or instigatory sort of yes. point uh, regarding inflection this point. and uh, inflection point on this and every other issue regarding U.S.-China relations. Yeah, so. definitely. It's something I'll definitely be watching. The second issue, this is where I emphasize coming years. I don't think this is going to be apparent, but clean energy. Um, I think clean energy has been so tied to climate change, and I've seen it start from a policy level, start to get untied from climate change, which is a very almost culture war polemic issue. And as clean energy start in the various forms of it, because there's, there's you know solar panels, wave, wind, there, there's a ton of different types of clean energies. I think as it becomes cheaper and as fossil fuels become even more volatile and or scarce, that this is definitely some an area that can become a bipartisan issue for both parties. Yeah, but what's also interesting is on the flip side of that, the way in which, I mean, you take the electric car example, the way mm -hmm. that some, it's become, we could see a bipartisan coalition sort of pushing against some of these energy innovations because of the impact on labor. Yes. Like we've sort of, we've kind of seen that over the last year. So I agree. It, uh, and this will lead into sort of my, um, my response, which is I do think we are seeing something of a political realignment, not the kind of like hopeful one people are looking for in which, you know, things will realign and the politically homeless will have a home and, and we could be done with all this tension, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I think there is a realignment taking place. And so, you know, I'm interested to see, you know, what, what kind of interesting labor-friendly policies come out of J.D. Vance 
Josh Hawley and willing Democratic co-sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think l- labor and um, working class policies are going to be are going to be interesting interesting points of of bipartisan on both sides, right? Like that's the nature mm-hmm. of many bipartisan policies. Yes, you get some issues that are, you know, get 90 votes in the Senate, but the other the other thing that we could see is a reemergence of bipartisan votes where you know, they're 55, 45, yep. Yep, 60, right. 40, but their Republicans and Democrats are on both sides, which that is something that has been dwindling. I'm interested to see if that will if that will rise again. That's, that's the exact kind of scenario I imagine for clean energy, especially in the more near term. In the longer term, I imagine it could just because from corporations' perspective in terms of making money, clean energy will only become more lucrative. And then I think for unions and workers, it will also only be only become a more winning issue because I do think our energy systems will finally start to make true switches. But yeah, in the near term, I could see it being more like a 55... Yep. you know, vote type of bipartisan um, uh, situation. Yeah. So I, so I think that that's my answer. Like, i um, interested to see how these working class sort of conversations go. Yeah. We, we've, we've answered similar questions and had similar conversations in the past about sort of family-friendly policy, but yep. I think that that's already happening. So I'll sort of leave that out because... Yes, it could be bipartisan in future years, but I think that's something that's emerging, and we've talked about that previously. Yeah, there, but there you is, could always throw that in. There yeah. is one dynamic of family-friendly policies, though. That um, so the New York Times is a great series right now. It's going to appear part of one of the articles of I think it's around five of them is going to appear in the top five t- in, today um, on our Substack, wherewearear.substack.com is uh, the caretaking crisis for um, elderly yes. parents and grandparents. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially as the baby boomer generation continues to age. Um, By 2030, one in five people will be over the age of 65. And the um, elderly caretaking system, especially like home health aides, is so um, fragmented and the government doesn't really provide much aid at all unless you are the poorest of the poor. Um, And so that's definitely that particular in the family care policy simply from the necessity of the amount of people that will need help that seems like a specific area of family friendly policies that i think could possibly go bipartisan a little bit faster than maybe other issues that can sort of get brushed under the rug yeah sure political games can be played with it that kind of stuff okay so let's move on to the next question what can Republicans do to win the presidency without Donald Trump? Okay, so I, I take it that the, the question is, there are like multiple ways to interpret this, but my interpretation of it is, I read that this person sort of wants the Republican Party to win the presidency, but it's asking like how to do it without Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, So look, one of the reasons why Trump has not received the opposition that previous 
sort of um, extreme, incendiary, out of the mainstream, quote unquote, you know, out of the sort of Republican establishment, traditional Republican establishment. One of the reasons why he's been able to get such a hold in the Republican Party is that unlike a Pat Buchanan, unlike, you know, in a very different way, like Steve Forbes or Pat Robertson, there was an expectation with basically like all those folks, Ben Carson, like, like go, go on and on. All the candidates like outside of the Republican establishment that ran, got some success in presidential races, is, is that um, there was an expectation that if they, if they lost, that their voters would vote Republican. One of the reasons why Trump has been such a... Um, one of the reasons why sort of Trump has been what he, what he has been in the Republican Party is because the Republican Party, I think, knows that it can't count on Trump voters just voting Republican if he loses. So, so I just want to state like that hurdle. Like one of, the, one of the real problems with Haley winning is that like George W. Bush could count on the voters of his primary opponents. Uh, George H.W. Bush could basically count on the supporters of his primary opponents, you know, voting uh, for him. Haley can't count on that. DeSantis couldn't count on that. So that'll be a real problem after a primary, even if Trump is defeated. Um, Now, look, we, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but, you know, a lot has changed in this in this primary. Uh, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan just endorsed Nikki Haley. Um, the Koch brothers, their C4, their sort of grassroots army C4, endorsed Haley. DeSantis continues to be pretty persistent in national polling as the number two, but Haley is picking up momentum. And I continue to think if Haley comes in second in Iowa, even if it's a distant second uh, to Trump, I think DeSantis likely has to drop out. I think, and by the way, I'm not counting out that DeSantis drops out before then. Um, But, Haley can come in second in Iowa. DeSantis drops out. Haley is able to come up with either a surprise win or just like a closer second within 10 points in New Hampshire and then takes that to South Carolina and wins. We could have a real primary. I think that is, at this point, the most likely scenario I can see outside of, you know, like, legal issues, acts of God, sort of that kind of thing, that, that Trump loses the, the primary.
Um, so, so yeah, like that. That's how Republicans win without Trump, which is like Trump has to lose in the Republican primary. But again, I think Haley probably has a better shot in the general than Trump. But Trump is not going to go quietly into the night. No. And you very well could have someone defeat Trump in the primary and Trump makes it a matter of personal vendetta to eliminate that candidate's opportunity to to put together a winning coalition. And so it's 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 a problem for Republicans to win with Trump. It's a problem for Republicans to win without him because of Trump. Um, remember, and this is the last thing I'll say, remember, Trump is the only Republican primary candidate who has not signed a pledge to support the winner of the Republican primary because Trump has not participated in these debates per the RNC's own rules. The RNC has set up rules in which their party's front runner is not obligated while everyone else is to support the winner of the primary. Like that is a pretty straightforward, easy to see example of how Trump will play this if Haley becomes a main competitor. Like Trump will just, mark my words, you know, 25 minutes into this podcast on December 3rd, if Trump actually faces pressure and his win of the nomination is in doubt, he will very openly, explicitly say, put put in doubt whether he will support the eventual nominee and whether anyone but him will even have a chance of beating Joe Biden or the Democratic nominee. So, yeah, like... In some ways, Trump will become even Trump will Trump will remain a complication even if he loses the primary. Um, So, yeah, Melissa, do you have any any thoughts? No, I think you're completely correct for 2024. 2028, I feel like at this point is very difficult to sketch sketch out really. In terms of what, whether or not Donald Trump wins the primary, if he wins, if he were to win the primary and then therefore win the presidency, it would be his second term. Obviously, um, I, that remains to be seen because that's how I also interpreted that question as well. Oh yeah, I mean Glenn Youngkin. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see that one. Okay, how do we choose the Bible verses for the Morning Five? I love this question. Me too. As I sat down to think about it, I have several different boxes that I check whenever yeah, I yeah, host why, yeah, why, yeah, why don't you why don't you answer? So I first. like to balance when I host the morning five. I like to balance usually between Old Testament and New Testament. Yep. Um, sometimes I choose a whole chapter and decide to split it up two ways, three ways, four ways, depending on you know if I'm hosting the whole week. Uh other times, um, it depends on if I myself am in a certain book or in a certain chapter, and I'll, I'll go with what I'm currently in. 
other times, sometimes it's because I am having a day of some sort and it is something that it's one of my go-tos. Or another thing that I've been trying to do is not just when my days are bad, like an anxious day, a terrible day, what you name it, is if I'm having a good day, I've been trying to find scripture where it just, you know, it's celebratory, you know, full of gratitude, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, those, those are the different ways. So I don't really have like a set algorithm or protocol, uh, that, that, that's how I do it. You're, you're the one who hosts the morning five officially and far more often than I do. So what do you do, Michael? Uh, my answers are basically the same as yours. I try to make sure that we're not, um, that there's a, there's a, a split between the old Testament and new Testament. Um, it's what I'm reading in scripture. I'll tell you what, I think the more interesting or, or another interesting thing to say in response to this is what we don't do is look at the news and say, okay, what scripture fits the news? Absolutely not. Because that goes against the whole point of the, the morning five, which is to place our politics and current events within and under the disciplines of prayer and scripture reading, not to place prayer and scripture reading under our politics. And so like that, that's just one thing I want to say, and I'm not opposed obviously to, um, you know, I, I advise that you consult scripture when you're considering current events, but what we wanted to avoid, what I want to avoid with the morning five is this, this uh, nagging feeling among listeners of like, what are they trying to say by reading this scripture in light of what's happening in the world? Um, uh, th that is, um, I want people to be able to hear scripture for what it is. And uh, in the context of the morning five and not just constantly have the nagging feeling of like, okay, does this mean we need to take this position or that position? Uh, are we being, no, like the scripture is very much like um, uh, us uh, decided by like where our personal devotions are, to be honest. So yeah. And the one that I completely forgot that honestly is probably my number one consideration is length. Uh, I don't, that's when I end up splitting up things and you'll hear me talk through the same chapter for, you know, two or three days in yeah. a row, but length, um, since it's the morning five, we try to keep it around five and therefore, uh, you know, there's several different chapters in, in the Bible where, it's best if you do not split them up, but then they're also just way too long for the morning five. Sure. Um, so, so that's another big consideration for me when I'm choosing. So this is a very niche question that made me chuckle. But you know what? I think every listener should know the answers to, the, to this question is, what is the best Buffalo pizza? So Buffalo, New York, if you're new to this podcast or new to Michael and I, Michael and I are both from Buffalo, New York, and we're very into being from Buffalo, New York, and we think that Buffalo has incredible pizza. So we, we've got some answers. It does. I mean, that's like a fact. Yes. Buffalo is the most underrated pizza town in the country. Like, yeah, New Haven's great. New York is great. Chicago is, is great. great. Detroit is great. But Buffalo deserves to be in the conversation. The spicy cup pepperoni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I love La Hacienda. You know I love La Hacienda. Oh, that's a good answer, Michael. thank you. Uh, La Hacienda in Kenmore. Yeah, so it's right um, down Tanawanda, it's yeah. right down the street from the high school that we went to, Kemore East. And so in high school, I would go down and get a slice. <sighs> and then Gino's Pizza directly across Gino's the street pizza. has fantastic pizza. Yes. So I, La Hacienda, Gino's Pizza. I love La Nova Pizza, which is a very popular one. It's on like Gold Belly. It, it deserves to be yeah, on. Sure. It's it's a delicious pizza. Yeah. Um, oh, man. What are... Bocce's. Well, you love bocce's. Yeah. I'm not a okay, bocce's okay, person. Okay. But people love bocce pizza. You can order it from Buffalo anywhere in the world and it will be shipped to you. So if you hear some, you want to know what Buffalo pizza is like, you can totally go on bocce's pizza and order yourself a pizza. Yeah. Now we were, I believe, I think this was a conversation we had, which is, yeah, no, when we were ordering for Sears' birthday party, you had the observation that like, um, like the uh, the sheet pizzas are not a national thing. Yeah, like not everywhere. I mean, tell tell does us a sheet pizza. Yeah, tell us. Do you live in a town or city where ordering a sheet pizza is a common thing that you can find at most pizza places? Because in Baltimore, it's not. I really wanted to order one sheet pizza for Sierra's birthday party, and I T- could tell not. the people what a sheet pizza is. A sheet pizza is a party pizza. It's huge. It's rectangular. The S H E E T. Just for <laughs> continue, like, continue like Texas sheet cake, um, and it's huge. It's a rectangle, and so the pieces are cut into squares. And it could it usually, I think, can feed around like forty people, kind of thing. So when you're catering or you have a large party, it's a great option instead of ordering like three or four large pizzas. You can order a single sheet pizza. It also maximizes. Like crispy crust, oh, yes. which is a the plus. crispy edges. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. The other one, um, one other pizza place that has gone out of business is Buffalo Tap Room. So anybody from oh. Buffalo area, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Their steak and cheese pizza was incredible. It's, Tell the people. It was our first date ever. Our first date, and we got a steak and cheese pizza. And yeah, we did. When Buffalo Tap Room closed, now two years ago, we drove up to Buffalo with, the with girls. our girls. To go to this restaurant to have this steak and cheese pizza one last time. But unfortunately, they had a limited menu. So we had their stuffed banana pepper pizza, which was about half just like it was so good. Yeah. Um, It was. Oh, I love Buffalo Tap Room. Just a side note. Just a side note. Like in Baltimore, crab cakes are on every menu. In Buffalo... Stuffed banana peppers. Hot banana peppers. Hot banana peppers. Appetizer at literally every single, every single restaurant. restaurant. And it's one of my to. favorite things. Yeah. They're, it's stuffed with a cheese breadcrumbs uh, Italian sausage mis- mixture inside the hot, long, like yellow banana peppers. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, should we end it there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> this this also means that we're going to have a second part to our listeners' questions because we got more questions than this, and we want to answer as many as we can. And especially because it's the month of December, we're feeling generous. Good recovery. <laughs> this has been where we are. Thanks for listening. Bye.